All righty. Hello, everyone. My name is Tasha Roberson Wing, and we are the Diaries of a Black Girl Foster Care podcast. And we are so excited to share with you all today. Today, we're going to be touching on. Um, just being black and working in child welfare and the social work in general. And we're gonna be honoring the social work month. And before we get started, I just wanna give a quick trigger warning. Sometimes we talk about heavy content and we don't necessarily know where the conversation is gonna go. We just bring ourselves and just have fun. And I also wanna just make sure that you all know that Diaries of a Black Girl and Foster Care welcomes all. This is a safe space. and. Um, we definitely welcome those who are transgender, non-binary, and choose not to identify with labels in general. And so with that being said, like I said, I am Tasha Roberson Wing. I am a current MSW and MPA student at The Ohio State. And I am going to pass it to our lovely host to get us started. Hey, I'm Alexandria Ware, and I am currently a 4-H agent at K-State Research and Extension, and I own my own consulting business, Ware Consulting, and I'm glad you guys are here tonight. I'm going to pass it to our next co-host. Thanks, Alex. Welcome, everyone. My name is Casey Getty, and I am the Senior Program Analyst at the Center for the Study of Social Policy and National Child Welfare Experts, and I will pass it to our other co-hosts. Hello, everyone. My name is Angela Quijada Banks. I'm award-winning author, transformational speaker, certified holistic health coach, and the founder and chief visionary of Soulful Liberation LLC. And I'm really excited to be here amongst all the beautiful women here. And um, let's go ahead and hear about who is with us. We have some amazing guests today. Um, one of them is Courtney Jones, MSW, from Austin, Texas. Courtney Jones is the founder and executive director of Change One. And we also have Krista Martinez, um, LCSW, and um, coming in from Washington, DC. Krista Martinez is a licensed social worker who has a passion for ensuring children and youth receive the supports they need to grow into healthy adults. I really wanted just to give you all um, some space to share more about um, what that work is um, right now. Courtney. Okay, um, so in child welfare, um, I think my biggest thing is just being an advocate um, for those that have um, transitioned out of foster care, but also being an advocate for those that are currently in the foster care system. And, and when I say advocate, that's basically equipping them with the tools necessary to be able to um, share their voice um, because so many times our voices is marginalized and so we don't know how to use it sometimes and so that's the work that I do in the child welfare system is just ensuring that their voice is heard. Thank you. Thank you so much. Krista? All right, can you guys hear me okay? It started spinning. Okay, perfect. Um, so I'm currently a foster parent trainer so I'm, I'm a real big advocate on sharing all different sides of what children in care come, uh, what they experience from the trauma, as well as how to, you know, have build them a healthy lifestyle and help them transition out of care as well. So, and I've been a social worker for 10 years. Okay. Yes, we're so excited to have you both here with us. 
thank you both for sharing. And I'm going to kind of lead us into the juice of our discussion today. And like I said, um, March is National Social Work Month. And so that is really, we've asked you all to come because, you know, you work in the field. But, um, and you're Black women that are serving Black girls in foster care. So we thought it would be a critical, you know, conversation. And so our first question for you both is explain um, to us kind of like your journey and how you decided to work in the child welfare field or social work in general. Since I went first, I'll let you go. I love it. Okay. Um, so for me, I always had a passion of working and um, with children and helping others. That was kind of the foundation. Um, I did grow up in care myself. So, you know, those experiences, I was like, I don't want a child to experience what I did. So how can I be an advocate for them specifically? And so um, I started my journey, like working in the school system and, and then being a school social worker, transitioned to, to therapy. So I've done a lot of different roles as a social worker, which is why I love social work, because you're not stuck in one little, you know, aspect of the field. And um, so I'm not saying I've done it all, but I definitely have my fair share of seeing all different sides of working in child welfare and the social work profession. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for all the work that you're doing. Um, I think it's similar. You know, I wanted to see someone that looked, you know, like me growing up, and I didn't really see that as much. And so I went into social work so that I can be um, a caseworker, someone that had a consistent, um, consistent face, you know, in, in the presence of other people that um, really needed it. And so when I first started off in social work, I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, and I kind of landed into working at a um, transitional housing program for homeless youth. And I, you know, I picked that because I was like, okay, you've transitioned from foster care and they fall into homelessness. So I'm bound to find a foster youth to impact and to work with. And so um, that's kind of how I started my career is working in transitional housing. Um, and then I kind of shifted because I always did advocacy and I wanted to figure out how could I use my voice in the advocacy work that I'm doing. And I'm originally from Dallas, Texas. And so the, the work that I was doing was addressing disproportionalities and disparities of um, young women of color in foster care and using my voice to create recommendations for the legislature. And so through that, I had an opportunity to move to Austin, Texas, um, to work for the Department of Family and Protective Services. And so I vowed to never work for CPS, but then I ended up there. And I'm so happy that I did because I have a different lens. I have a lens of 10 years of experience in foster care, lived experience. But then I have a public policy lens of, you know, how does legislation um, create policy and why Why were some of the things that I went through happen? And so it gave me a better context. And so I'm grateful for that experience that I had. And then I did school social work because um, I felt like I was traumatized from working with the system. Um, and I wanted to kind of, you know, impact the system on my own terms. And so I found love for school social work. 
Thank you. That is amazing. And so I just want to highlight a couple of things before we um, move to our next conversation that all of us work in the child welfare field in some capacity, but we all have lived experience in the in foster care. And I think that brings a unique perspective um, that we have to navigate within the field. And so this leads me to my next question is, um, do you share your lived experience status with employers or like, how does that come up? Do you feel comfortable doing it or do you not care to share? Um, I'll go. So like for me with like colleagues and coworkers, I definitely, once I got a little bit older, I was more open to share because over, it took me some time to just share in general, like that experience, right? Cause you don't want to feel the judgment or the weight of that or, oh really you know those different type of reactions you may get um but as i've healed and grown um it just depends but early on social work you know they teach you not to share right because you don't want to put your biases or personal opinions so for me as a professional you know if it only makes sense for that client that i'm serving right um i, I like as a therapist i never i never did that you know, as a trainer, at times I may, um, just to kind of drive that point, whatever that topic may be for that day. Um, that's how I share. And everybody feel free to hop in. Courtney, what about you? Um, originally, um, I shared my experience because I started in advocacy. And so that's, you know, I shared it. But what I learned is that I didn't have to share my story to be an advocate. And I wish I would have known that um, early on. And that's why I teach strategic sharing to young people now to let them know that you do not have to share parts of your story that you are not comfortable with. And you don't have to share it at all. You know, and it's important if you do share it, sharing it in a way that is it doesn't re-traumatize you or you have somebody to go to and debrief um, about it. And I think in my advocacy realm, I did, but in my professional realm, I um, I actually left Dallas because I didn't want to work as a social worker and be judged um, because I was in foster care. And I felt like if I went to another city and nobody knew me in child welfare, then I had a clean slate. So I lean towards more not sharing my story but because of the role i was in it was called a youth specialist role and everybody knew the youth specialist role is a former foster youth role so it's kind of hard for me to escape that and i found that many people did not value my voice because they knew i was in foster care so that's when as a social worker i found my value going into school social work because they just they saw my awesomeness for what it was and what I contribute and how I help students. And so I tend to not share my story when I'm in other settings, but I do see it as a value in child welfare setting because I have a lot of lived experience, not just from foster care. I've been a foster parent. I've been an adoptive parent. I work for the system. So I have a lot of perspectives to, to share and I'm proud of my experiences. I'm not, I'm no longer ashamed of it. And I no longer, to let people put me in a box. Mm -hmm. Amen to that. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> I can go. Right. Oh, go ahead. Um, so I agree with you. Like my, I've always steered my status as starting out in advocacy, 
but more recently switching to like youth development where I'm working with young kids who have no child welfare experience. Um, I have kind of like, it's kind of bit me in the tail. So recently I had experience where my directors basically said, since I grew up with a lot of white people and I grew up in foster care, I should know how to code switch so much better than what I do. And so I was like, well, just because I grew up with white people and I grew up in foster care, what does that have to do with the issues that are at hand? So I feel like I'm in this point now where I'm like, ooh, I do want to share, but at the same time, it showed me where you put me in this bucket to where because I was raised by white people or because I was in the system, I should know how to be something and that's not the case. Um, so it, it kind of makes you feel like I don't want to share with anybody and you're very hesitant. So um, I've learned my lesson of like sharing and so really tailoring my resume to where people don't know that I grew up in the system and taking mm -hmm. some of those accomplishments that I'm truly proud of that I've gotten because of my advocacy journey off my resume so then nobody knows that I was in the system. Yeah. That's an interesting point, Alex. And then the and also in my experience, you know, I've also entered um, you know, the child welfare, working in child welfare through advocacy as well. And but and I used to always share my story, but as time went along and as I did go to social work school, um, you know, one of the things that I've learned throughout my years of, um, you know, training, consulting and sharing my story, doing speaking engagements is one, you don't always have to share your story and using strategic sharing. But two is always and the thing, things that I've taught my young people is to show up with your expertise first and your experience second, um, because, you know, when we show up and use our experience all the time, they always look at us as either the person with lived experience or the young person who grew up in foster care or, you know, just they, they look, they put us in that box. But I found when I've shown up with my expertise first, like, okay, yeah, I've had these experiences, but I also know that I'm an expert in some of these things because of those experiences. Not my experiences made me, but because of the things that I've learned along the way have also taught me how to show up at this table and how to do my job. Um, so those are something that I keep in mind and how I move forward in my professional career now. I'm gonna have to take that into into account because I'm like I'm not sharing <laughs> because I feel like I feel like if you know me or have some type of relationship with me, you will know to some capacity that I do have lived experience mm -hmm. in uh, foster care. But one thing that I just find that is so ironic that is a lot of these positions, advocacy positions, they call for those with lived experience, and it's like you're just there, but it's like a like the stigma of child welfare being a foster child, it's like they can't get out of their bias. So I don't feel like that I'm always extremely valued or, you know, I feel like I enter the space at a disadvantage because these people know that I have lived experience and they are operating out of their bias. And it's not the same in every situation, but I feel like I have been in situations where I were, was at the, a disadvantage. And so now that I'm getting ready to graduate, I don't really see myself necessarily going into like the child welfare field, but going into policy where I focus on child welfare and not having to display that information. Because like you said, like, 
I am an expert in this field first and then I bring my experience. But I genuinely want to do the work and I want my work to be like taken seriously. And it's just a fear that other people's bias of what they think um, a foster child, especially a black girl, <laughs> in foster, you know, should be or operate, especially when all you hear is us being presented in a deficit lens. And so we've talked about that here, just making sure that we speak of black girls uh, from a lens of love versus and like, you know, talking about our the beauty of being black and all that versus presenting this information from a deficit lens. Yeah, I think on the other side, like it's power in sharing your story yeah. because although we may have our fears and in, in, of just hesitant, when you get on the other side of it, what I found, like we do more we, when we have the expertise, we have the experience. So we know exactly what we're talking about and we have that confidence, but like you just never know whose lives you can change just by sharing just a, a little bit. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I agree. For me, um, I was definitely very ashamed for a long time about like even the thought of being involved in foster care. Um, definitely didn't see myself as uh, being a part of child welfare in any capacity as an adult. <laughs> um, so now I think it's more so not paying attention to the organizations or platforms that kind of dismiss um, lived experience, but really kind of like what we're doing with this podcast, creating more spaces, um, really having more tables that we create to um, shift that narrative that lived experience is really expertise as well. And there is so much value. And I think it's honestly the missing gap is the lived expertise leading the work. Um, from every aspect of child welfare. There's no reason that there should be these over 50% percentages of what's happening with transition age youth, um, black girls. I mean, there, it's just, you know, homelessness, sex trafficking, all these horrific things. And the fact that organizations and platforms want to completely dismiss that expertise um, while having these different high percentages. Obviously we are the gap that needs to be filled is our voices, our stories, um, leading the work. And I, you know, I'm happy you said that because um, I'm gonna I'm keep it. I'm gonna keep it real. Today I, I had a little. Um, I was in my feelings a little bit because someone asked me and to help um, build an hour and a half training to find four alumni that have had some type of adoption experience. And they asked me what my fee was. I told them what my fee was. And um, they came back and said, well, can you calculate like how many hours it's gonna take? So I did this whole proposal. I had two out, I gave them two free consultations for them to come back and say, I'm sorry, well, we're not gonna go with you, but maybe in the future, we'll figure out a different way. And you, first of all, you met with me and told me how important my voice is at the table. But then it's 16 agencies that's going to get training. And I feel like that that's a lot. And you get to record it and keep using it afterwards. Absolutely. And I was just I was taken back and I was like, wow, 
and she emphasized we do we do um appreciate your knowledge and expertise that's what she said at the end and i was like okay and it and, you know and recently it happened to me again where somebody's like we want to promote adoption for children of color in foster care and i told them my fee and i know my fee is so much less than what people that don't even have any foster care experience charge and they told me um sorry and they did the the announcement thing promoting children of color in foster care without me because of my fee and i'm just like i want to do the work but you want me to take off of my full-time job to come and be a part of something. You want me to use my PTO. You you want me to use my gas and mileage to get mm -hmm. somewhere to be your keynote Gas speaker. is $5, by the way. Like, <laughs> yes. And almost $9 in Cali. So, um, yeah. <laughs> my coins, please. Like, That's I unacceptable. Mean, it is. And I just I just feel like you you say you value me, but do you know how much time it takes to customize a training? Do you know how much time it takes to locate young people to be a, the right young person to be at the table? Because I'm not trying to just throw anything together. I'm trying to give you something quality because I really want to make an impact. And I tell them it's not about us sharing our story. It's about what action are you going to take from our expertise. And I don't think that they get that. You know, and, I, I, oh, sorry, I'm so sorry to cut you, cut you off. I was just going to say, I've always been taught whenever you want to see worse, if somebody values something, follow the money. And if you're not willing to pay us to be at the table, do you really value us? Or is this just a box you want to fill to say, hey, we've had somebody with lived experience here and mm -hmm. we called on them, but you're not even really implementing our voice and you're not really trying to pay us. But that's why I say that bias come in. But you would go and I hate to be this blunt, but social work is filled with white women. You would go and pay the next white woman to come and do the same training where you just missed the expertise in the room. So. Yeah, and that's even with jobs, too, that companies specify, oh, well, we hire former foster youth or we value former foster youth's opinion. But when you get there, that atmosphere is very biased. It's very much like, oh, you're the problem. You did this, this, and this. And it's like, whoa, instead of coming at me, like, teach me how to be a great employee there. You're so quick to say that people yell at people and people do this and people don't get their things done. But, like, most of the time in advocacy, we show up and all we have to do is tell our story. We don't have to plan everything out. Everything is done for us. And these jobs that say they want live expertise to work for them, they don't have the environment to support the lived expertise. They don't have the environment to where they want to hear the real truth and they want to understand that some people ain't going to want to do it the way you want to do it. You know, people are going to want to work with those youth because they understand what it's like to have a caseworker who didn't work with them. So they don't, it's not even just the bias, it's the environment and the whole thing that they're just not ready for lived expertise to run the system, to be a part of the system, to be Ooh, at the that table. Part. They are not ready. And it's sad and it's disheartening because we all have lived expertise, but we are all bosses in everything that we do in our 
just our experiences outside of child welfare. I mean, I've known all y'all in some capacity in different ways and following the work you do, you have expertise in your field. You went to school, you paid Ohio State, Rutgers, K-State, Oklahoma State, all these universities to get your degree, to get trained. So not only am I a former foster youth, but I'm Alexandria Renee Ware, who has a master's degree, who has done the work to be at the table for you to treat me like an employee and not just someone who grew up in foster care. Yes. Yes, I know that's right. Them letters well, after our names mean something. I and I know. <laughs> <laughs> One second, y'all. Let's let's uh, let Miss Christian. What I was gonna say, what I will say, I can appreciate working in the DMV. Um, like I said, as a trainer, you know, I get to get creative. I get to pull on different people in my network. And, you know, Alexandra, she's been one of them. And I love that because it's been refreshing for them to be, to openly accept the opportunity to get a foster care alumni. But it's, I feel like it's definitely made changes in having perspective. Foster parents really listen to the stories and highlight what is needed so they can be good foster parents. Yes. I think the key there is some foster parents. <laughs> I think some of these agencies, they, I don't think they understand what inclusion really is. Inclusion is not just us telling our story, but inclusion is from start to finish. Yes. So implementing our ideas, because honestly, we know because we didn't lived it, but also we have this education at the same time. And then when it comes to black girls, understanding the culture and making sure that the resources are accessible. So not just me coming to share my story, but also making sure that I'm included from beginning to end. Yes. And before we move on, I definitely want to highlight the aspect of uh, the difference between advocate and speaker. So if you have been speaking on more than one occasion, you really need to shift your language to public speaker because that has a completely different wage and can be the difference between you getting a $25, $50 gift card to like some real, you know, moolah. So I really want to highlight that as something to consider if you think like, oh, I'm just an advocate or I'm just First of all, I don't use just in the beginning of the yeah. word, but <laughs> um, there's some expertise behind that. If you've been doing that for a while and, you know, you continuously are seeing that the wage isn't going up for you. And before we move on to the, the next question, I just want to say this and then I'm going to get off my soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I kind of look at it like in child welfare with people with lived experience, it's kind of like, okay, well, you won't do it, so someone else will, kind of like how it is with men, like, oh, you won't do it, another girl will. Mm -hmm. So that's how I feel in child welfare when they when they hit you with the, okay, well, thank you, but uh, we'll, we'll circle back around another time. It's because you're just going to go and exploit someone else that doesn't mm -hmm. know what I know, and that's my worth. And not to say that they don't know their worth, but I remember being young and wanting to share my story and be a part of change yeah. and not knowing everybody at that table is getting paid by an employer, but me, you know what I'm saying? And so that's why I'm trying to spit knowledge to our young people. And that's why I do what I do as far as my trainings with young people, because I want everybody to um, not be exploited. I want people to leave better than when they came in that room. I think it's a shame if it's a homeless work group and that young person's coming and they're homeless and they share their story and they're still homeless when they leave and nobody in that room tried to help them. 
And that is my soapbox that people need to help. <laughs> you <laughs> know, one more thing. Also, we don't understand the emotional labor of doing this work. So, like, not only do you, I need my money, like, it's not just because of like the work that you can see. But also the emotional labor to make sure I'm investing in my self-care, which we're going to lead to later on. But um, making sure I'm getting myself back together because it might have been something that was shared that was triggered. And to add to another point, I feel like, yes, if we don't do it, somebody else is going to do it. And usually the younger person because they don't know better yet. So and I'm, I try to stay away from the young because like they may not have fully healed or they still, you know, things can be easily triggered you know, saying mm -hmm. certain things and topics and you just never know when you're going to be triggered too. And I will say like, as a person who has helped young people, as like all of us have, it's hard because they want to help and they want to tell their story. But at the same time, sometimes I don't even think it's that it's that worth. It's just, they have so much going on that that $50 Amazon card is going to get them some stuff they need. That $25 Uber Eats card is going to get them some food for that night. So they're so, some of them are such in survival mode exactly. that as you're surviving, you're like, okay, I got to get it. What can I do to get the, the next thing for the next end to meet? And that's not right. Like you said, if we're in a strategic planning session with young people about homelessness, that young person don't need to leave from that table being homeless. We all know some resources so that young person should be able to leave and be put in a placement. And that's the work that also needs to be done within this if we're asking young people to share their stories. That young person is actively homeless and they're telling you and telling a group of social workers or foster parents they're homeless, then we need to fix that. Why is that kid up there telling their story that they're homeless, but you ain't doing nothing to help them fix that? And that's a huge issue. As an independent living worker, I used to see that bothered me. Like, oh, let me have all these kids come talk, but I'm not gonna fix no issues. Like, what are we doing? We're hindering them. Sorry, let me get off my, my soap because we'll be here all night. Transitional <laughs> age is my passion. I just need everybody to continue to stay on their soapbox so we can <laughs> continue to have these conversations. Um, you know, thinking about that in our sense of every one of us have lived experience and we also um, have done advocacy work, still doing advocacy work really heavily in the field. Um Really, what does that really look like as far as self-care, uh, restorative care? How do you put yourself back together? Because in my experience, man, and the older that I'm getting, it's like I'm taking it's taking so much to like mentally and emotionally go all the way back to that particular time and like feel all the emotions like it's raw. And then like, you know, people are expecting a certain amount of, uh, you know, this is what you need to be hitting. These are the quotas of the points and all these other different aspects, which is fine. But then what are we actually doing behind the scenes after that? You know, how are we restoring ourselves? What does that look like? Well, for me, I'm, I'm really thankful um, over time just to lean to my support. I found a lot of friends have turned family for me. Um, of course, therapy and the Lord and prayer and things like that. But, you know, I have people that I can just call on FaceTime, you know, reach out to just to share, you know, um, and I'm so thankful for that because if I find myself in those places, I can, okay, whew, we're back, you know? So I love that, that they, you know, they may even be watching if they are. Thank you. I love you. And yeah. Uh, I love that. Um, Casey. 
Yeah, so I would say uh, the same thing. Having a support system is highly important, especially uh, doing this work, but also knowing when to turn work off. So I used to be that person where I would send emails at like 12 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> 1 o'clock in the morning. You know, I had to learn that. Um, and it was after like, after one of my jobs, I learned that like, I'm not going to live this life anymore. <laughs> and so I never had work on my phone at all. Um, never had work emails on my phone. Um, never had notifications. When I am off, I am off. Do not call me. Don't ask me no questions. Don't text me. I'm off. I made sure like my young people, they knew I was off. They would still have access to me in, a, in an absolute emergency. You had to be like stranded somewhere <laughs> to call. But um you know, but they also knew like, oh, okay, but, you know, alerting them, letting them know like, hey, y'all, I'm about to be out of the office for a couple of days. But if y'all absolutely positively need some, <laughs> this is where y'all can reach me. Um, but other than that, you know, I had to shut things down. And when I'm home, when I leave work, I leave work at work um, and just come home and have other things to be a part of, you know, finding peace and joy and other things like y'all know I do DIY and crafting and all this other stuff. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> I focus on that and um, being a long distance runner. So th those are the things that keeps me sane in my circle, which I love. So bomb graphics and all. Yes. Yes. <laughs> She's great. <laughs> I feel like it's so hard to, um, separate the two at times because it's like your purpose and your passions just so like into it and then also the lived experience so you're kind of like aware of different things that that people that um don't have lived experience or lived expertise interacting with youth or interacting with these systems are aware of so i think that's amazing that you've been able to kind of separate that or turn that off i'm still exploring how to do that still <laughs> And they well, preach it. They definitely <laughs> preach it in um, social work school. So <laughs> it's cool. The only thing I haven't been able to turn off is my dissertation because that's always right here. <laughs> so much. But yeah. Rough. Rough. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not but you're doing it. I'm not going to hold y'all. I'm not even going to lie and make it seem like I have a, a self-care routine, which is a part of social work ethics now. I think I'm not even going to make an excuse. I just, I need to do better because I look at it like, you know, self-care is needed because you can't give from an empty cup and your girls low-key kind of E. But at the same time, I feel like platforms like this is like a form of self-care to me and like sometimes I just like to FaceTime my friends so that helped but other than that I don't have a a routine a regular routine it's always good to find something though like I love to cook I paint all those things it can mm -hmm. be helpful yes I was making salad dressings for a while and then here comes school, 18 credit hours in grad school. Do not do it. Uh-uh, not the 18. It's 18. I'm still at 18. You but, are uh, first of all. <laughs> I would never. I lost my mind out here. <laughs> and you need to go find it somewhere. <laughs> Hopefully by uh, May, May 8th, 
I'm you going to that uh, stage. Lesson so. two. You will. And let's go across the stage. And we're going to be cheering for you. Girl. Listen. Yes. Um, I will say something my transformational coach has taught me over the last year is that self-care needs to be built into every day, not just the routine you do when you're burnt out. So for me, my family, my friends, they hate it. But my phone goes on. Do not disturb at 8 p.m. And if I don't want to talk to you and if y'all are watching, I love y'all. But y'all already know the deal. It is off. I will call you back if I want to talk to you. I will text you back if I want to talk to you. That is my biggest self-care I do every day because it allows me to, one, if I want to read, read. If I want to journal, journal. But whatever I decide to do to pour from myself of all the emotions and everything because I'm an empath. So I pick up on everybody's feelings around me and they bother me. So at the end of the day, I've had to learn to let them out because they're not mine to hold. So Having a transformational coach who I love so much, and she's like an older sister to me, uh, older sister to me, teach me self-care. Something you do every day has really, really changed my life. Um, whether that's cooking myself dinner, whether that's going on a walk in nature with my nieces and nephews, just something that pours back into me. But the one that I will not change. I mean, even if I get a husband and kids and all that stuff out there at 8 p.m., you won't hear from me. That's well, at least you'll be with your husband and the kids, so you'll be good. And he can go have yes. me time in his room, and I'll have me time in in, in the bedroom. You know, <laughs> turning him off at eight <laughs> p.m. Hey, I just need it. a little yeah, bit of time. I'll see you when go to bed. <laughs> you have to go to bed. It's time for you to go to bed. I'll say you go to sleep, but it's my time. My time. Let me know how that works out. It's gonna right, be great. Right. Me too. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I, I can go, Courtney, if you want me. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Um, Well, I think it's really important to be very intentional. And um, so for me, that was uh, <laughs> that was uh, definitely trial and error. Um, interestingly enough, as a holistic health coach, I was really focused on, like, you know, my clients and, and everyone else. And then just kind of seeing myself like go on the wayside and making excuses, right? Because I'm in my purpose and I'm doing my things and all the stuff and not prioritizing myself. And then uh, what was it? Beginning of this year, January, I got diagnosed with, um, what was it? Iron deficiency anemia. And I was like, oh, this is why my energy is like non-existent and I can't even get out of bed. Like, randomly you know throughout the weeks and then I think it's just kind of been a huge shift so now I have more so of a huge focus on um, planning um, my health and wellness goals planning and making sure that if I say that I'm a valuable asset to the community and if I say that you know I I'm standing for, you know, rest and restoration and healing and all these things that I myself am creating the space, not just kind of letting, letting it happen, but being very intentional and focused in my nutrition my fitness, my sleep, my hydration, who I was so dehydrated. <laughs> um, and it can really feel like a lot because, you know, especially if you're a black girl in foster, you know, from, with lived experience in foster care. Um, you're used to like survival mode all the time, right? And all the time. And 
at some point there has to be a shift in not just the mentality or the spiritual system, but the physical aspect of your human experience. So I feel like that's been my exploration now. And so I do have spaces with my husband now. And it looks like, you know, I also paint Krista and um, I do some dancing. I love dancing. Um, and I'm also singing and exploring some of the like childhood passions that I had that when I was younger, I didn't get the chance to fully explore them because of other unnecessary situations. <laughs> so I would say like now it's more so similar to what you were saying, Alexandria, like having a plan, having, you know, that embedded into my day to day and encouraging others to do the same. I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can say for me, I started self-care like when I was in college um, and my self-care was kind of different. I joined a, a community service organization, National Association of Color Women's Club, um, also known as NACWAC. Uh, so we we provided service in the community. And so I felt like me finding a sisterhood outside of everything I was going through in child welfare and trying to navigate um, adulthood, that really helped me being a part of that service organization and giving back. But also, like I said, I met some really cool um, sisters that are still my friends today. Um, and yes. so I think that, that is, you know, one way that I have incorporated self-care is just by um, just building my own community. You know, um, I have a community within my church. You know, I've served as a greeter. So, you know, I'm like, if I don't have nothing else, I got to smile and I can say welcome. And so, you know, my greeter, you know, community, my, you know, usher community, like my Bible study community. And so it gives me a sense of stability with my emotions and feelings and self-worth by being a part of other communities outside of child welfare. And, um, you know, I have children. I have two children. And so um, with me fully focusing on my own nonprofit, I have said that the weeks I have my children, it's a hard stop at four. So, you know, and that has been a struggle for me to implement that hard stop at four, but my children will be old before I know it. And I'm like, where did time go? And I don't want to miss out that time on my children. And so I, I have found myself having to use the word no. Um, and, uh, okay. <laughs> you know, no. cause I've joined a couple boards and they want to meet at four 30 and I'm like four, I'm sorry. I, I, I can't participate cause it's after four. Um, and so, um, and I know some people don't like those boundaries, but you know, I, I've been on the other side of not having self-care in my life, not putting boundaries in place. And I don't like that, that Courtney, I, I'd rather be the Courtney I am now with putting me first and knowing that it's okay to put me first. And it's okay to be selfish sometimes um, because if I'm no good, I'm no good for my kids or anybody else. And so um, I had to sit down and really think about, you know, what does self-care mean to me? And, um, and you know, I started going to go get my nails done. You know, um, I was like, that's what, you know, I can disconnect from the world, get my nails done. You know, that's the one thing I can do that brings me joy and happiness. And, you know, um, I'm learning to look at 
what kind of things do I like to do and exploring those things. Like I actually do like kayaking and canoeing and stuff like that. Um, so I'm doing more exploring um, because that will help with my self-care is putting those things in place. I love me a good adventure. Mm -hmm. Hiking. Yes. I love hiking. All I love how you said boundaries. Yes, they are in place. And yes. that that is beautiful because as black women as a whole, whether we are in foster care or not, we don't believe in putting in boundaries. We believe we just got to go, 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 go. Um, yeah. So I, I love that you said boundaries. That is something that I am working on hardly with my therapist and in my life. Yeah. Boundaries. Like it is a boundary that you, you have to learn to set. Yeah. And people make you feel bad about making boundaries. And it's like, it's not a bad thing. No, yeah. it's not. It's there for me to be the best me for you and me. Mm -hmm. Like, you want me grouchy or you want me happy? Which one? You want? <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree with that as well, especially as you said, Alex, as Black women, but as also young people who have um, grown up in foster care, like we, and working in the child welfare field, like tending to overcompensate um and wanting the best for either who whatever whoever your clients are um and just like not understanding what that boundary is or not doing the self-care that you need to do because you want the best for somebody else and at the same time like you are like uh tasha already said you can't pour from an empty cup so you know like making sure that those boundaries are in place are very important and also as as us being women <laughs> um you know just we carry in the world on our backs <laughs> and it's all in our history and in our culture especially as black women at that as well i would say one thing i actually did not give myself enough credit because with me being in school i actually have been saying no a little bit more to you know just advocacy roles like i just can't do it like i i've come to the point where you know has some health scares to kind of like put things in place. So for me, self-care is saying like, oh, I'm actually gonna go to a doctor's appointment and I'm not gonna put a meeting <laughs> um, over my doctor's appointment. I'm gonna go to these diabetes training classes, education classes, and I'm not gonna like choose working on something else. Like I'm just gonna put me first. Yeah, I, I was definitely really afraid of the doctor for a while. So um, I love that you're doing that, Tasha. That's also since 2022 that I've been making more <laughs> of a priority. But, you know, look at the history and it gets a little, it's a little crazy. So we're going to move on to our next um, question here, and it's around resiliency. You know, I think that's something that we are always told to be and unintentionally something that we become. Um, how do you all define resiliency? Krista, uh, you get us started? Yeah, you see, I'm already ready to talk. Um, yes, I saw so it. <laughs> before we went live, you know, um, I shared that's really what my dissertation is about. My topic is factors influencing perseverance and success among foster care alumni, but focusing on graduate education specifically. Um, and through that, talking about the barriers and resilience. So I define resilience as overcoming obstacles, right? Um, and But you have to address that to be resilient, you had to experience some type of problem. There's something that got in your way. 
there's some type of trauma, there's something that happened that was a roadblock, but because of your fight and drive, you still found a way to overcome that. So that's my definition. Yes. Mm -hmm. I would say um, for me, resiliency is having a strong bounce back game. Like, um, I think that if we have encountered some shape, form or fashion of adversity and we bounce back and we're still here, we're resilient. And I think sometimes people don't give themselves credit um, for being resilient, but I feel like if you figured out a way, it was probably hard trying to figure out that way, but if you figured out a way Maybe it's not even how you wanted it to turn out. But if you figured out a way, that is resiliency. If you're not giving up, that's resiliency. Even if you give up and then you bounce back after you gave up, you're still resilient. And I think that people just don't see that in themselves. And, you know, some people ask me, like professionals, like, oh, my gosh, you're so resilient. How how did you become who you are today? And I tell people I'm no different than the young people that you work with. I'm no different than the statistics that we talk about. I fell into those statistics, but guess what? I bounced back. And that's what I want people to understand, that you can always bounce back. No matter what you go through, you can bounce back. Yes. And, you know, having lived experience also being Black women, do you all feel like that's something that's a... Um, compliment um at this point in life do you feel like that's something that you wear as a badge of honor um in strength or for me yes um because <laughs> it's been a journey like I, I definitely can admit that there's been a lot of different experiences that made life hard right so yeah. i'm thankful that i can say i'm i am resilient um and I made it, you know, I'm thankful. I'm, and like I said, we talked about survival mode, no longer living in survival mode and just enjoying life and being at peace, whatever comes and being happy. Yeah. For me, you know, when I listen to the word resilient and when people ask me, what does it mean to me? And, you know, how, how am I, who I am? I just feel like they kind of just dismisses every other young person that is going through something. And so I try to educate people that I'm no different than them and they're no different than me. Like resiliency doesn't mean like just because I've obtained certain things that you feel is of stature that I'm resilient. No, these young people are resilient too. They may not have a degree. They may not have their own home. They may not own a car, but they are resilient too. They may not be public speakers and advocates, but they are resilient too. If they made it through the child welfare system, they are resilient. And so that's what I, I, I want people to know is that I'm not, I'm not rare. Do you see everybody on this screen? There's we are resilient and many more people are resilient. And so that's what I want people to know is that like we changing the game up in here. Like if we made it through five, 10 foster homes and caseworkers and adoptions and, and sibling separations and all of that, we all are resilient. And so I don't want people to think that I'm rare because I'm not. You want to go, Tasha? I can. 
I struggle with this. And I think we were talking about it before we got on the um, live. And I think my answer is it depends on where I am in life if I want to be called resilient. Like right now, I'm a grad student and this has been the most challenging thing I would say I've done well in a, a long time. Like this took a lot out of me. And in this space, I don't want to be called resilient. I want to be heard. I want to be able to be soft. And I don't want people to look at me like, oh, she's strong. You got this. Okay, I might have had this. I, and I'm going to go through it. But I just feel like sometimes in this space, calling me resilient, it doesn't help me. Like it just, it just doesn't feel good. And I think it takes away from other people's ability to let me be soft or just let me come for help instead of just saying like, oh, you're resilient, you got it. No, like, let me vent. Can I cry? Like my bosses, if they ever listen to my podcast, they are podcasts. They will tell you that I come in the office and I ask for hugs. And I feel like that's because they're not placing like this strong black woman, this resilient factor on me. They see like in this moment, I, I need to be soft. So they're always there to give a really good hug and they're the best hugs. <laughs> so yeah, that's just my my thought on it for right now in in the place that i'm in right now i love that same i agree with tasha i'm in this space in life where i don't want to be called resilient um i don't want to be called a strong black woman i want people to understand that i am soft but yes i am strong but at the same time i'm human i have emotions i have things that go on and i don't need to constantly be treated like oh well you went through the foster care system, so this is nothing. You, you can make it happen. No, let me, like Tasha said, let me vent. Let me cry. Let me just be a human. And sometimes I feel like we don't get to be human when people are saying you're resilient. Oh, you're strong. Oh, you've done this. Oh, you've done that. It just takes away from us just being human and just acknowledging those emotions. And for me, just thinking about the world of resilient, it just... A couple weeks ago, I was at this food justice um, place, and I'm going to mess up his name because if you know me, I you know I just mess up na names. Um, his name is Amar Mosley, and he is the executive director for Pillsbury United Communities. And he gave a definition of resiliency that it just was like, mm, I love that. And he said the true, true resiliency is in communities um, emerges when there are equitable systems, infrastructures, and social connectedness. And it's built around the people. It's not built into the people, but it's built around the people. And that hit me in my gut because when I think about child welfare, when I think about my own experiences, I wouldn't be resilient without the people who are who have been in my life. I wouldn't be resilient without the people who allowed me to be soft in those moments, whether it was a therapist that the state paid, whether it was a social worker, whether it was somebody. But I was allowed to be resilient because I had those people who built resiliency around me, who taught me it's OK if you need to cry. I mean, my best friend, I called him last night and I was crying. God bless his soul. He's amazing. But he's learned that sometimes I just need to be soft. Like, I don't need to be this strong Alexandria or this strong Alex, however, which whichever environment you know me in and the name I decided to go at the time when you met me. Um, but he's learned that, like, I just need resiliency built around me. I need people to allow me to be me and be human 
and just be soft sometimes and be a woman. Like women are not supposed to always be strong and hard and just masculine. We supposed to be in our feminine and be soft. So that's how I feel. Yeah, I love that, Alex, as well. Like, you know, just allowing us to be able to be, right? And also be soft and not always having to be strong. Um, you know, I know that there is a lot of research around resilience as it relates to child welfare. In fact, the um, initiative that I work on talks about resilience and we've done um, research on it. However, when it comes to me, I'm just kind of like, I don't like to wear it as a badge of honor because, again, it insinuates that I've had to be strong all my life and I don't have the ability to have space to be soft. Um, and, you know, I've actually had conversations around the resilience with my therapist and we've talked about other words that can be used like, oh, how about she was courageous. She persevered as drive. She has ambition. Um, those are things that she used to get where she is today and not just, oh, she has resilience. So that's how she got there. Or she was in the foster care system and she has resilience. Like, no, I persevered. Like I use tools. I learned different things along the way. Yes, mm -hmm. I may be resilient, but I'm also other things as well. So I would love to hear um, Krista talk a little bit more about it especially because it's in your dissertation, like hearing what we are kind of talking about, what like comes to mind for you? Um, it's a couple things, right? Um, so for me, just hearing things, because although you're resilient, right, it doesn't, doesn't mean you can't be vulnerable, right? Uh, that's, it's like, mm -hmm. that is, that's been my word of the week, I feel like, um, because being resilient, like I said, it, it comes off that you are this strong individual, which we we are because we we work really hard to overcome some things, you know. But it's okay to be warm and soft-hearted and have the people that you know you have those safe spaces with. Um, I even had a conversation with my therapist about that, about being vulnerable. And I think why it may be hard for some people in foster care, well, foster care alumni, is because we've experienced different people that we were vulnerable to that let, you know, let us down. Um, but doesn't mean that after you overcome some things that you can't find a new circle that you can have those safe spaces with um, and work through. And the biggest thing about resiliency is you do have your protective factors. You know, you have your self-care, you have the things that keep you going, but you do have a support system. And that could look different for everybody, but the number one thing is support. So um, I think that's important to, to highlight as well. I really enjoy listening to all of your perspectives around um, resilient. And I think one of my biggest problems is maybe like what I tack on to the definition um, or how I perceive the definition, but definitely like listening to y'all. I'm like, hmm, maybe I can be called resilient without like automatically associating strong black women with it. But like you said, being able to um, still be soft and resilient. So it's some, some things I'm gonna look up. So yeah. And um, I, I know, like we said, we wanna be cognizant of time. I can kind of lead us into our last 
question. Yeah, that's that's what I was thinking. Okay. And so because this is National Social Work Month, one of our questions are like is it's surrounded about like any tips or advice um for black girls who are thinking about going in so, into social work or the child welfare career, especially black girls who are experiencing care. So my system cut out for a second. Um, could you repeat that question? Yes. So um, our last question is, do you have any tips or advice for black girls um, who are thinking about going into like the social work or child welfare profession? Um, I say go for it, you know, um, because regardless of however your experiences was, you have a lot to offer, you have a lot to give. Um, and the beauty in social work for me is you can wear many hats mm-hmm. and you can do different opportunities and explore as we kind of shared everyone kind of does something different um and it's amazing and i love that so um go for what you want yeah like that yeah i would most definitely say for those that are um young women of color thinking about going into social work um representation matters um, that's why I went into the field so that there were young people that um, could see somebody that looked like them, especially when I went natural. Then other young women were like, oh, like they felt confident about their naturalness because they saw somebody else that was natural. So I would say um, that is one thing. Um, another thing is if you are interested in becoming a social worker, um, maybe ask someone that is a social worker to do an informational interview with them so you can get an understanding of what their journey has been in social work so that you can kind of see you know what is it that you want to do because you can go to hospital social work you can go working Mm -hmm. with children it's so many different variations um that you can use your skills and expertise in once you get get your degree so i would most definitely say um find somebody in your community and set up an interview and start that's how you could start the process yeah i definitely agree with that as well courtney um you know i although i do work in child welfare and that has been most of my career i did have opportunities to try other types of social work in different populations um which i did enjoy as well so i definitely would say that as advice as well to you know try different populations you may like it you may not you may come back to child welfare but definitely try it out social work is a very broad field um and you can get a lot of different experiences which can ultimately i would definitely say that those experiences have definitely added to um my expertise and how systems work and learning about child welfare and being able to apply it to child welfare as well and then the second thing i would say is know your work um (laughs) know your worth and know how much you know you would want to get paid you know it's a myth i just want to let everybody know that's watching it's a myth that social workers don't get paid a lot of money um because (laughs) we can and we do so don't let people deter you because i had a lot of people when i was in high school and i told people i was like oh i'm gonna be a social worker they like oh you don't want to make any money i'm like what <laughs> but it's a myth so for me um 
you know, I'm very uh, unorthodox and I really um, push that for other people. I, I say be creative. Um, the role that you envision yourself and how you can support and um, completely disrupt the child welfare system may not exist. Um, and so therefore you're able to create, you know, a space for yourself. There's several um, entrepreneurs on here, um, business owners, as well as, you know, in the world that have lived expertise and really doing the damn thing. Um, the other thing I would really say is having a healing plan in place, something that you're really, you know, proactive about. Um, burnout is real. And especially in this field that happens, so often and um, just thinking about all the different individuals that have passed away um, and have had very chronic health issues um, in this field of child welfare and didn't attend to that. Um, just really wanna put that in, into place, really prioritize your health, really prioritize the types of relationships and the support that you have around you. This is not a game um, at the same time, especially because you have lived expertise and lived experience. Um, and really just give yourself grace, you know, give yourself grace throughout the period. You might get triggered, you might have other kinds of things come up, but um, making sure that you're having some kind of plan in place, a support system and um, not allowing yourself to be put in a box because mm -hmm. I mean you can create anything I'm gonna let you go Alex um I would say the biggest advice I can give you is just know what you want to do whether that's social work whether that's therapy you don't have to do social work just because you grew up in the child welfare system and I feel like as young people we always feel like because we grew up in the child welfare system, we have to go into child welfare. And that's not the case, um, as everyone else has said. So just figuring out what you want to do and also knowing that like innovation comes from being uncomfortable. Um, so you're going to be uncomfortable in this field. You may be an expert within your lived experience, but there's parts of this journey that you may know nothing about. So you're going to be uncomfortable and step into that uncomfortableness. Don't run from it because it's there to help you grow. And so as you're figuring out what you want to do, don't run from growing and transforming and just developing into the amazing person you're going to be. So there's support out there. There's people who want to help you just tap in to, to the support. Hmm. What I want to say, I, what I do say, especially depending if they're an undergrad or where you are in school, I love social work because you get the opportunity for your practicum. You will have internship opportunities, volunteer opportunities. So you'll get to see what feels good for you and what doesn't. Whether, like you said earlier, it may be child welfare, it may not be, um, but doesn't mean that you still can't go on the field of social work. Yeah, I agree with that because, like, I guess I'm in public affairs, but I look at social work as a tool that every profession should adopt, especially like with our um, code of ethics. So like I want to go into government, but I can see how having a social work background can fit into that. And I would say, so 
I was listening to all of you talk, and I know time is running out, but I think this is important. I know we just gave um, advice and tips to young Black girls who want to go into social work, but I think it's important to also give any advice and tips to um, anybody that is currently working in the field that are working directly with Black girls who are experiencing foster care. And so I just asked, like, what advice... We can leave on that note. Like, what advice or tips would you give to a CASA worker that could be looking, a caseworker, a judge, um, that could go back and listen to this podcast? Like, what would you want them to know? I know it's hard because I did not prepare y'all for this, but that's what we do here. We just go flow. I'm ready to share, but whoever wants to go first. <laughs> go ahead. Take it away. Um, so... I wanted a story because I, I remember my first early social work experiences. I was on a case and there was this constant worker. I don't remember her name, but she said openly in court that this girl was unadoptable. I'll never forget it. And I just, that just crushed me, right? Um, because you are her advocate and you're giving up on her. So, you know, these girls are going through so much. They need someone to not give up on them. They need someone to love them. They need to let someone know it's okay to feel how you feel. And I'm right here with you to support you through that. So I think that's the main thing is, you know, they may have behaviors. They may even be challenged. They may even cuss you out, but they still need you and never forget that. I love that. And um, in social work, we talk about, we used to talk about cultural competence, but now we're shifting to cultural humility and realizing that you do not know the answer to everything, especially when it comes to like a cultural sense. You don't know the right answer. So I think steady pres positioning yourself in a position where you are reflective of your actions, you're asking questions of the young person, and you're not sitting there like you know all the answers, but also with looking at the cultural context of the child welfare system, what has been, um, you know, the history of how Black girls are treated. And I, I think just having that background is important and just not assuming that you know the answers because you might not know what that girl had to get through, get to just to get to the meeting with you or what she experienced, you know, at school in the foster placement, you don't know. And so going in there ready to listen and not think that you know the resources right away, but mm -hmm. you know, definitely incorporating them into you know their own plans. Yeah, I agree with that. And then piggybacking off of what Christia said, you know, being their consistency and their stability, you know, look, I, I was not the best foster kid. I cussed people out. I cussed my social workers out. I think my social worker, <laughs> she kept the recording of the voicemail <laughs> that I left her. And we'll always, oh, my gosh. And we'll always play it <laughs> for me. Um, but, you know, but she never gave up on me. And she was always there. And I had other social, uh, another uh, caseworker. He was always there. He would always come when I called. He would always answer the phone when I wanted to leave a placement. And he would show up and he'd be like, 
now we both know you really don't want to leave here because we don't want to go through that whole entire process of finding you a new placement again. Um, and But it was those times where they did show up and they were consistent and they gave me that stability that I was missing um, within my journey of foster care that really helped me understand. And, and, you know, they really knew, like, and I talk about them all the time when I share my story that, you know, they were the ones that were consistent and they were always there for me and they always showed up. And so like I tell social workers and caseworkers like, yes, just understand that they are going through a lot. And at the end of the day, and I said this on the last episode, you get to go home to your family at the end of the day. They don't. And they have to go either live with a stranger or live with other people. And so just continuously taking that into consideration as you're working with them and understanding that, you know, the things that they are going through and that it's not easy. And we know that your jobs are not easy, but their life isn't as easy, isn't any easier than your job. So. And I would add on to what Casey's saying is that, you know, listen to the folks that had lived expertise, lived experience. So um, subscribing to this podcast <laughs> and um, picking up uh, a copy of You Are the Prize by Imani Myers, picking up a copy of the Black Foss Youth Handbook by Angela Kiata Banks, and several other amazing alumni of the foster care system, you know, really feeding yourself on the different perspectives of youth with lived expertise, because otherwise that's going to continue to be a gap. I would say something. Um, so everyone who knows my child welfare story knows that my judge knew my whole biological family. And she held me accountable when I was aging out of foster care. She made me write a letter explaining to her what I was going to do if I failed out of K-State and what my plan was. And as a kid, I hated it. But as an adult, I truly appreciate her because it wasn't just my social worker who held me accountable, who showed up for me, who was there for me, but it was my judge. It was my whole social work team. I mean, I was like Casey, I was a bad kid. I cussed people out. I may have had some behavior issues, but they still were there. I mean, they're still there to this day. I texted my social worker a couple of days ago and I was like, hey girl, you know, I was just thinking, I'm really sorry about how I treated you while I was in the system. And she's like, it's okay. And I was like, mm. First off, it's not okay how I treated you. So one, accept my apology. And two, we're going to work on you just accepting the apology when I, but she still shows up for me and my brother to this day. My brother's 30, I'm 29. I wouldn't have it any other way. She knows all of my nieces and nephews. You know, she shows up for them. When they've graduated from high school, she sends them a card with some money. She's there. And it wasn't just, we were her kids in care. We were like her kids birthday cards. I've gotten a birthday card every single year since she's been my social worker. Whether it's a text or an email birthday card, she still shows up and I'm 29 years old and I aged out of the system going on 11 years ago. So that support that I have from her is amazing. But at the same time, she would take us when we had visits or when she would come to see us to do something outside of the home to give us an outlet. So whether it was going to get food or going bowling and spending that hour together. So then that way I could talk to her and be honest away from my foster parents. And I could be vulnerable and I could tell her like, listen, these people are cuckoo. They ain't got no food in here. They trying to starve me. And she would hear me. That's the one thing when she started like moving our visitations to outside of the foster home, 
I truly knew she can and I stopped cussing her out and I started to be nice to her. But it took me having, well, I don't want to say it took me having to challenge her, but that's how I felt because I needed to see she cared about me. So I'm not going to dismiss my own feelings. But going the extra mile is what she did and what my judge did that's left an impact. And that's going to continue to leave an impact in my life, but not only my niece's and nephew's life. So just go the extra mile. I'm going to second a lot of the stuff y'all said, and I'm going to start with going the extra mile. Um, I was in over 25 different placements and, you know, I was kind of done with the system. I had turned 18 before I graduated high school and I ran away and my caseworker could have closed my case because um, she had a whole bunch of other kids on her caseload and she didn't. And I thank God that she didn't and that, you know, she cared enough for me when I didn't even care for myself, you know. And because she didn't close my case, I did get my tuition fee waiver. I did get to go to college. I, I, you know, I have been able to start my own agency, but my life could have been different if she didn't go the extra mile. When I read my CPS record, there were things her supervisor had instructed her to do that she did not do. And I appreciate that she built a relationship with me and trust with me and that she went the extra mile for me. Because I wouldn't be here without Karen Alexander. And I appreciate her and all that she does for all young people. And I would just say to go along with the record thing, if you are writing people's records, know that they can request those when they become an adult. And think about when you're writing, is it subjective or objective? And check your biases at the door. Because... Those things can dictate if they get adopted, if they don't get adopted, if they reunify, if they don't, if they get to be with their siblings or not. What you write matters. And so just think like if somebody was writing something and you're and it was dictating your life, what would you want them to write? So, you know, think about that. And then also when I was in college, they made us uh, read a book about civility. And I think practicing civility is really important um, and it goes a long way. I would say don't take it personal because I was one of those youth. I ran away. I cussed people out. I fought. I did a whole bunch of stuff. But it was because that was my response to the trauma. It was not that person. So don't take it personal. Don't get in power struggles. <laughs> you know, like just don't don't do that and value their value, their feelings. You know, their feelings and their emotions and the things that they're going through, value them and validate them. Um, validating their feelings is so important and just creating that space for them to be able to be themselves. As a social worker, when I was in school, I was a school social worker and some kids would just cuss and yell and I went and said, no, don't cuss. You can't cut. No, I'm going to let them get it out. And then I'm like, you done? You know, and I didn't take it personal. And those students, I went a long way with them. So I would just most definitely say, you know, don't take it personal. And this is going to be my last soapbox and I'm done. If you are a worker that know another worker that's of color, don't go ask them to go talk to a, a, a young person of color on your case just because they're of color. 
or just because they have lived experience because my lived experience and me being a person of color is maybe different from another person. And so don't put people in those uncomfortable situations because I've been put in those situations before. Um, and know that like, if you're encountering that young person, like you have the tools to work with them. And if you don't, maybe you can go ask someone for those tools if you need to, so you can challenge yourself if you're gonna be in this field. Um, but yeah, have more confidence that you got this, whoever you are out there. I love that. I really do. Thank you for that, Courtney. And I think that is a good way for us to end and a good note to end on. But before we end, I do want to give a, a couple shout outs to some people that have really been supporting us. Um, one Simple Wish, thank y'all for the gift cards. Pearls of Sage, thank you for your donations. And I also want to give a big thank you to our two guests for this coming in and sharing their expertise. Like, thank you for just bringing yourself to these conversations because I know it's going to go a long way. Um, we have people, you know, really tuning in. So I just want to thank you all for just being here and showing up, um, especially for Black girls in foster care. Um, thank you. Thank you again for the opportunity. I did love, um, enjoy speaking with you and those who are tuning in. Um, what I will say, just going off the what you said about your court records and that you can access that, I think it's important to have that um, to go back to. I know some, I have mine and, you know, sometimes I do look through those things and just kind of remember where I started, you know, mm -hmm. but knowing where I am. So um, if you don't have a copy, go, go seek that out. Yeah. And we want to thank everyone who is watching with us tonight and who is in the, we see you guys in the comments. Um, so we want to thank you all for tuning in and thank you to those of you who will be watching this or listening to this later. Thank y'all. Thank y'all like for creating this platform. Um, it is so much needed. So thank y'all for organizing this and I pray for a continuous conversation that is going on so thank y'all so much thank y'all and so with that we out y'all have, yeah. have a good night everyone <laughs>